And you're here for a reason. You're here because I believe the hand of God is on you. I believe that your father, in Acts 8 and it says, God knows the exact time and place where you should live. You know that? The exact time and place. It's not Australia, sorry. It's not even America. Durban, South Africa. And I'm telling you that the prophetic word of this city, for many, many years, is God is stirring up this church. He's stirring us up so that we can hear the voice of our Father and we can respond in faith. That we can bring a different sound, a different voice. That in is such a beautiful presence of the Lord. Did you feel that? Because God is raising up people with a different voice, a different sound that will go out into our city that will bring the sound of hope. And the sound of a better future. And the sound of actually that the Lord has not forgotten us. That actually the Lord is very much front-footed, leaning into here. Who's going to step up and say, Father, here I am. Use me. Father, here I am. Bradley, at whatever age. I want to hear your voice because I want to live a life of action. I want to live a life of impact. I want to live a life worthy of the great gospel of Jesus. So Psalm 126 goes like this. From the Passion Translation. It was like a dream come true. When you freed us from our bondage and brought us back to Zion. I was sitting in a meeting with two of my friends. And she said, Mark, can you speak to Jude? And that generally means that I need to put him right on the phone. So I'm like, babe, she's going to phone you back in a couple of minutes. And I phoned back. I said, what happened? She said, Jude took a hammer and decided to make a hole in his bedroom wall into the laundry. Thank you, Ryan Fetter. Because Ryan, when we went to visit them, they got a hole from the bathroom into their laundry, you can just chuck your underpants and t-shirts straight through the hole into the laundry basket, it doesn't have to be in the room. So Jude is seven, decides good idea, takes a four pound hand and just starts giving it to the wall in his bedroom. So I'm like, sheepers, bro. So I get home, I say, Jude, I come on and talk to you about this hole in the wall story. So he say, come and sit down in front of me. Got the most beautiful green eyes. And I said, Jude, you know, that was a very bad idea. So look, you can check he's not convinced, but he's hearing me. So I said, dude, that's going to cost a lot of money. So what I'm going to do, and please don't freak out and report me. <laughs> Just record it. <laughs> I said, dude, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a highlight today. I'm going to give you six of the best. That's how I like, whoa. He says, hey, Dad, could I have a different consequence? So I said, okay, we can negotiate a little bit. So I said, okay, so what I'm going to do, what you've done costs a lot of money. So You've got a thousand rand in your bank account, so I'm taking that. And I'll pay for you to go to soccer and I'll pay for you to go to gymnastics. So you're not going to do that for two months. Getting hectic now, I'm stupid. And it's your birthday in July, so you're not getting a birthday party or presents. I'm going to take that money and fix the hole in the wall. And these little tears just level up. As a flip over his eyelids and I saw it out of space. I looked at his little face and said, Jude, come stand right so I'm going to talk to you. So he walks up to me, looks at me in my eyes. I said, Jude, do you understand how much that's going to cost mom and dad to fix this hole in the wall? And you can see in his face he did. I said, bro, are you sorry? He said, I'm so sorry. I said, okay, boy, I will pay for it. And you can go free. And he looks at me, he ran to his bedroom, he made this most beautiful card. And he brought it back and he said, Dad, you want some tea? <laughs> how are you doing? And I thought, you know what, that's a silly example, but that's not nice. If you look at this, it was like a dream come true. When you freed us from our bondage and brought us back to Zion. Do you understand that we were in chains and we were in bondage and we were without any hope? In the, in the NIV it says like, when the Lord brought the, the captives, those who were captive to sin, those who were captive to their, their failing lives. And when you brought us back to Zion, which is where God is, 
the Father, and you look into his eyes and he says, all of your failings, all of your debt, everything is paid for by the blood of Jesus. Yeah. You go free. It's like a dream come true. It says that our mouths are filled with laughter and our tongues with songs of joy. So the Lord has done great things for us. The Lord has done great things for them. It goes on to say, and we laugh and we laugh. Overflowed with gladness, we left shouting for joy and singing your praises. All the nations saw it and joined in saying, the Lord has done great miracles for them. Yes, he has done mighty miracles and we are overjoyed. I feel this evening, we, we can't lose the radicalness of our salvation. You can come into churches. I mean, this is an awesome church. Air conditions are up. You're going to get the cheapest child in town. You're going to get the coolest worship leaders. You're going to get an average preacher. And you're going to go home and say, this is pretty cool. But actually, the thing that is overjoyed, the thing that fills you is that Jesus knows your name. And Jesus is taking all of the sin, all of the mess of your life, and he's put it on himself. And he said, you know, that hole in the wall costs a thousand rand plus all your gymnastics, plus your soccer, plus your birthday. All six of the best. Actually, off the table, I will take it for you, boy, and you go free. Now, the Father is infinitely more amazing than I am, <laughs> and you are. You see, the value of something is determined by how much you're prepared to pay for it. You know that? The value is only... How much you prepare to pay for? I was telling to, to Richard earlier, and I'm looking at cars, and, and uh, someone says, Oh, that's not a good idea. And I'm like, I don't care, I want it. Looks cool, look like Batman. I'll pay for it because the value, it doesn't matter what you think, it's what I think. The value of that thing is how much I'm prepared to pay for it. And Jesus paid for you and I with his love. And he is of infinite value, which means to me and you and Bradley, we are of infinite value. There's a reason to be joy in the house tonight. More than a cheap cow. <laughs> Those that go out with weeping and carrying seeds to sow will return with joyful laughter and shouting with gladness as they bring back almonds of blessing and hearts overflowing. When you understand that when you, it says those that sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Your salvation is the greatest thing that has ever happened in your entire life. And when you realize that you're here for a reason, that actually God has called you to have a meaningful life. My sermon title, if you want one, is what is the meaning of life? What are we doing on this planet? What are we actually on about? I read this book many, many years ago called The Search for Meaning by a man named Victor Frankl. And uh, I'm just going to a little bit of it here. It says, in the search for the meaning of life, psychologist and neurologist Victor Frankl wrote this about his ordeal in the concentration camp as an inmate during the Second World War. So he was in one of the concentration camps. He was a Jewish man. He was thrown into the, the concentration camps as the Nazi Germans were trying to obliterate the, the Jewish nation from the face of the earth. And he wrote this and he says, Interestingly, he found that those who survived the longest in the concentration camps were not those who were physically strong, but those who retained a sense of control over the environment. It's amazing, one of the greatest gifts God has given us outside of our salvation is our ability to think. Our ability to choose the way we see the world. And I'm hopefully, by the end of tonight, I want you to see the world as something that God has placed before you, for you to rule and reign over it. We are not, I'm not hanging in here for Jesus to come back for me and my four mates. 
hanging in there, please Jesus for the rapture. I'm trusting for a victorious bride. I'm trusting for a church that rises as the darkness increases, the church is going to get lighter and stronger and brighter. Because we get to choose who we focus on, and we focus on Jesus, the one who rules and reigns from heaven. So a man who's in the concentration camp says that he observed that those that were the those that kind of survived the longest were those that had the ability to choose the attitude. We who lived in the concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. There may have been few in number, but they offered su sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man in one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's own attitude in any given circumstance, to choose one's own way. As believers, we not only do we get to choose, but we also got Jesus on our side and got the Holy Spirit leading us. Frankel's message is ultimately one of hope. Even in the most absurd, painful, and disturbing of circumstances, life can be given meaning, and so can suffering. Life in the concentration camp taught Frankel that a man's drive of motivation in life is neither pleasure, which Freud would have believed, nor power, as other would have believed, but meaning. You're going to make it through this life, you're going to say, what is the meaning? What is the reason we hear? And I want to suggest to you this evening, the reason you're here is to display the glory of the King of Kings, Jesus. To show the world that He lives and that He reigns from high. And that He's got a bride that He's coming back for, that you and I form part of that. The meaning of life is to give life its meaning. Our jobs as believers is to be the ones that carry hope. That say no matter how painful situations are, we can go into those places because not only... Do we have faith that Jesus is coming back? Do we have faith that He's ruling through us as His kingdom comes in and through us into this world? Say Amen, please. Go to my corner Let me help you. I think that we need to be excited about being on this earth with this message of hope. We don't want to be those that just sing about this. We want to be those that actually go out and do it. Ephesians chapter 2 says, speaking about, the, about our salvation, and He says, and he did this so that in the ages to come, he might clearly show his immeasurable, unsurpassed riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, by proving, by providing for us redemption. For it is by grace, God's redemptive, remarkable compassion and favor drawing you to Christ that you have been saved, actually delivered from judgment and given eternal life through faith. And this salvation is not of yourselves. Not through your own effort, but it is undeserved, gracious gift of God, not a result of your works nor your attempts to keep the law, so no one will be able to boast or take credit in any way for your salvation. For we are His workmanship, His own masterpiece, work of art, created in Christ Jesus, reborn from above, spiritually transformed, renewed, and ready to be used for God's works, which He prepared for us beforehand. So if you understand the story, which is very limited in its application of Jude, everything was taken away in terms of his punishment so he could go free. So when we understand that, that God has taken everything away that is holding us captive, everything away that should keep us small, everything that should keep us up at night, we should be free. It says, for freedom's sake, that Christ has set us free. We should be the most free people on the earth. And freedom, my friends, is not so that we can live in anarchy. Freedom is so we can be who God called us to be and live the life that He intended for us to live. It's amazing, He says, He, that we are His workmanship. 
forgive me if I said this last time, but I said I can't remember, but that goes with this cool story. It says, we are his workmanship. He created us with our future in mind. He hardwired you for the destiny that is given you, that is called you to. He's put you together. In Psalm 139, says, he knit me together in my mother's womb. All the days ordained for him in his book before, one of them had to be. We are not random people. We are here for purpose. We're here because God intended it. We are his workmanship. The, the, the word there actually means poem. We are his poem to the earth. As people of the world see us, we should be reflecting and resonating the kingdom of heaven, the poem of our Father in heaven. We should be able to choose our attitude in the greatest of, of, of stress and in the greatest of joys because actually we are in Christ, because He has given us a new life. The message version says it like this, that God has us where He wants us. You know, God has a plan for your life, as does the devil, by the way, as you're wondering. I can't remember how I went this evening, but there was something about Paul John was saying, we put everything under Christ. Our family is alive. And I, and I don't know how many of you can have had this problem. I had when I was growing up. Like, I've got this dream for my life, or this plan that I want to do with my life. And I was, I was scared to put it at the feet of Jesus, because I wasn't sure that His idea for my life was as cool as what I had. I thought I had a much better plan for my life. I was going to become a father, father. I was doing all kinds of things. And I was like, God saved me. And he says, lay everything at the cross. And I laid down my, my parents and my future wife one day. And my many kids that I never knew were coming. And I put it all down at the, the foot of Jesus. I said, Jesus, you can have them all. But when he starts to say, well, Mark, I, I want to take you on a journey because I've got a future for your life. I want you to preach the gospel. But you can't get up here and preach a whole lot of words with no substance. So what I'm going to allow happen, believe it or not, you're going to go through some suffering. And half the charismatic church just come out. Me, I want to go to Legoland, but everything is awesome. <laughs> well, that ain't what Jesus promised us. He promised us a bit of suffering because in the, in the, in the perseverance of our faith, there's a strength that comes inside that you can speak to people and say, actually, my friend, I've been through some stuff, and Jesus is still on the throne, and he is, I still love him with all my heart. And actually, when you squeeze me, what comes out of me is Jesus. You're not random, friends. You're not just bubbling around. He's actually got a plan here. And the, way, the best way to find the plan is to understand that I relax in Jesus and He starts to stir me. It says that now God has you exactly where He wants you. Oh, I love that. <laughs> With all the time in this world and the next to show His grace and kindness upon us. Saving us is all His idea and all His will. All we do is trust in Him enough to let Him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around raving. Is that not funny? That we've done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. He creates each of us by Christ to join Him in the work that He does. The good work He has gotten ready for us to do. Work we had better get doing. It's amazing that if you look at the book of Genesis, right at the beginning, and God creates the earth, He puts man and woman on the earth, and He says to them, work. So most of us think work is a curse. Who thinks that? No, exactly, because it is. In Genesis chapter 2, I mean, Genesis chapter 3, when the, when the, when the, when the sentence is in the world, it actually says that you will work and you will earn money by the sweat of your brow. You read that? But actually, Jesus reverses the curse. So I have news for you, I believe. When we live on the new heaven and the new earth and Jesus comes back, we're going to work. 
The work that we do is going to be glory to the Father. It's going to bring joy to our Adam and Eve works in the beginning. And God has got a work for us to do, which we better get, on do it, get doing, even in this life. Passion translation, last translation, and I'll move on to some points here. In verse 10, I'll go from there. We have become his poetry, a recreated people that will fulfill the destiny he has given each of us. For we are joined to Christ, the anointed one, even before we were born. God planned in advance our destiny and the good works that we would do, that he would do, and we would do to fulfill it. Big idea is God has got it under control, friend. We've got to lean into him and say, okay, if we're on the earth for a reason, help me find the path. And what does it look like, Mark, for the meaning of life? You see, for me, the meaning of life is finding the, 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 the Jesus moments in the day-to-day life. You know, we're waiting for that big moment. You know, if I'm his masterpiece in the day when I arrive and it's now the masterpiece is finished, everyone is ready, and I'm like, it's me, God's masterpiece. But actually, the masterpiece is found in the moments where actually life's pressure's on and you, you kind to your spouse. You're gracious to your children. You live, I, I want to say this, we just finished a series at The Rock and a lot of these thoughts have come out of us. We've done a series called The Good Life. And what does it mean to live the good life? A meaningful life. And I want to suggest this evening, the good life is the laid down life. Jesus says, die to live. So our message of the gospel is, come to Jesus and die. That you may truly live. You see, when you understand it, that's dying to myself. And living for the benefit of those around me is actually the greatest gift God has given me. Because as I do that more and more, I become more like the sun. The, 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 heaven, the heavenly kind of host, the heavenly kingdom is reflected through me as I lay my life down. And I say, actually, the good life is not everything, as, as um, Freud said, is all about pleasure or power. No, no, it's the laid down life. It's the life that says, Jesus, I want to be like you. Those that sow in tears will reap the songs of joy. Those who go out sowing will reap because actually, the, unless the seed falls to the ground and dies, it can't produce anything. So if your life is not random and you're here for a reason, it says in Psalm 128, unless the Lord built the house, you labor in vain. You see, for me, the big idea, whenever you know, my wife asks me, my children say, and again they ask me today, Dad, what are you going to preach on? I said, I've only got one message. Jesus. I don't have any other clever messages. I wish I did. It's all about Jesus. It's all because of Him. It's all going to be about Him. This evening, all I can say is that you're on the earth because of Jesus. You're here to bring Him glory. You're here to love people and bring more people to Him. Because in living the life of Christ, the Christ-centered life, the good life, the laid-down life, when you see Him, you've never felt more alive in all of your life. He wants us to live a life that is actually the laid-down life. You know, in Genesis chapter... Genesis chapter 5, I can't remember exactly, but you know the story of Cain and Abel. If you don't, there's the two brothers, they're living on the earth, they're the first two kind of sons of Adam, and uh, the story goes like this, Cain comes along, he gets frustrated with his brother, and he kills his brother. Kills him, first murderer. And the Lord comes to Cain and says to Cain, Cain, where's your brother Abel? And these words which ring out into eternity, and we hear them all the time on the earth, and says, am I my brother's keeper? Is it my job to look after my brother? Don't worry about me, worry about yourself. And Jesus comes to turn that around. And he says to you and I, young man, you are my brother's keeper. 
Your job is to keep your brothers and sisters. Your job is to lay your life down for them. As you see Jesus, the one who models it for us, said, this is love, that you lay your life down for your brother. Jesus is saying to us, church, as we see his, his, love, his fingerprints all over our city, he's saying to you and I again, you have been freed from your mistakes. You have been freed from your sin. You have been set free by the, by, by the, by the blood and life of Jesus. So that you can live the life he called you to. And the life he called you to is to protect and to love and to serve. He said, Jesus said to the disciples, how will the world know that you're my disciple? Your love for one another. Yes, I am my brother's keeper. Yes, my job is to get strong in the Lord. The Paul says to him, says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Because in doing so, you will save not only yourself, but also your hearers. Go after the Lord. We've got to seek Him with all of our hearts. We've got to grow in understanding of Him as our Father. Grow in understanding that actually He's given me a task on this earth. And that He's taken me from captivity and He's set me free so that I can bring the glory of the Lord. God's called us to love one another, friends. He's given us what we need for that, which is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit stirs us. Those that are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Two more stories that I've done. Who's watched the movies 300? Like everyone, all the guys, you start crossing with your arm, you look like a Leonidas. Three years later, and I'm not yet. They keep trying. Okay. We want to be Spartans. We all wear t shirts and we wear rash vests, we go to the beach. It's a lot more buff than the rash vests on. But the Spartans were thin and they were revered for their strength. The courage and the endurance. The power of the Spartan army did not come from the sharpness of their swords. However, it did come from the strength of their shield. Losing one's shield in battle was considered the single greatest crime a Spartan warrior could commit. Spartans excused without penalty the warrior that lost his helmet or breastplate in battle, but punished the loss of citizenship rights the man who discarded his shield. The reason is simple. A warrior carries a helmet and a breastplate for his own protection, but the shield for the safety of the whole line. And God has called us to call up our shields, brothers and sisters, to lock shield, because actually we're protecting each other, the whole line, keeping Jesus as the center. And the world is so full of critics, the world is so full of sad people, and, and people that are just, actually life was so hard, but actually as believers, we need to be the ones that rise and buoyant and stand up. Say, God, you called us to something awesome on this earth. We're not going to allow the situation, as Franklin says, to overwhelm us. We're going to choose our attitude to be like Jesus. We're not allow the critics to wear us down. I've got a saying, if you want to make people happy, sell ice cream. Because <laughs> if you've got half a bone of leadership in you, people are going to criticize you. You want to step out and say, okay, Mark, I want to take what you said this evening, that my life is not random, that Jesus has taken away my sin. He has set me free. He's called me to a life of, of, of victory and, and journey with Him. He's called me to shine His light into this city and beyond. He's called me to be a man or woman of God. I promise you the enemy does not sit around saying, okay, cool, go for it. That'll be amazing. Let's see you do that. No, no, He's going to come against us. Another quote from Theodore Roosevelt. You probably heard this. It's not the critic who counts or the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena. His face is marred by the dust and sweat and blood. 
who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, but there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But he who does actually strive to do the deeds, he knows the great, the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at least knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be for those cold and timid souls who neither knew victory nor defeat. I feel like God is causing us as his army to rise, to stand up. He's stirring up. I love what John said, there's been a consecration. God consecrates us because he's about to take us into the promised land. You know, when the Israelites were about to step into the, the promised land in the, in the book of um, Joshua, they're about to go in. If you know how the story goes, as they come out of, as they come out of Egypt, what was took them out of Egypt, the story goes like this, eventually they get released to leave Egypt. They, end the edge of the, they get to the edge of the Red Sea, and as they stand on the edge of the Red Sea, the, 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 um, the Egyptian army are pressing them from the back. They, they're coming to kill them. The Red Sea is in front of them. There's no way to turn. They turn and go back. They'll be killed by the Egyptians. If they're just running to the sea, they'll drown. So fear is pushing them from the back, pushing them. And eventually, you know the story, Moses gets up, holds up his staff, the sea dries up and they walk across into the desert. So fear, with the Lord opening the way, pushes them through. Play the story forward 40 years. Most of those people died except for Joshua and Caleb. The rest of them find themselves standing on the bank of the Jordan. Again, the banks of the Jordan, they're standing on the banks of the Jordan. The river is in full flood. Again, they find themselves in full flood. River in front of them, desert behind them. God is saying, I want you to go across. You can imagine... Um, Joshua and Caleb said, I oh, will check how this one works. No problem. What you do is you stand on the edge and you lift up your staff and it opens up. The Lord said, no, no. We're going into the promised land, a different deal this time. The promised land requires you to consecrate yourselves. For the boys, not as cool. No less cool for the boys. He's on the front of the as well. That's like fast too. Consecrate yourself before the Lord. Then he says to them, okay, what do you do? The priests, the men and women, the, the men that carry the presence of the Lord, pick up the Ark of the Covenant, put it on your shoulders. Now remember, the river's in full flood. Oh, so walk in like this. And he says, okay, how this is going to work? He said, a little different to the last time. What I want you to do, okay, with me, step into the raging flood. Like, what are you taking? As they put their foot into the river, the river backs up. And it says it backs all the way up to the town of Adam, where it all started. The synergy of Adam. And they all walk across. You see, what takes you into the promised land is not fear of what was behind you. What takes you into the promised land that God has for your life is the promises that He has in front of you. He's saying, I'm drawing you into a land that is flowing with milk and honey. A land that is spacious and from church. A land that is flowing with milk and honey. A land that will sustain you. A land that will be sweet. He's asking us, will we forget what is behind? Understand that we've been washed clean. Understand that we don't have to pay for the hole in the wall. You want to step into the, the raging river and take the land that He's called us to as we consecrate ourselves before the Lord. Because the land before us, the promises before us, are going to draw us way better than the fear of us pushing us from the back. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me stand together, please. I'm going to pray. Father God, I thank you this evening. For this amazing group of people. I thank you for their passion. Thank you for their love for you. I thank you that they understand that they are sons and daughters of God. 
And I pray that the purposes and the promises that you have for them individually and as a, as a church into their future would draw them across the Jordan. As you consecrate them, Lord God. I pray that the, the land that is flowing with milk and honey, a spacious land, a land that is, which is an inheritance, which is flowing, which the milk will sustain and the honey is sweet, would draw them as a community across the Jordan into the promised land. I pray this evening, God, as we place our hands on our hearts, that our hearts will burn with inside of us for your gospel. Understanding that no one is in this room for, by random chance, that our lives are not random, that the meaning of life is finding you, Jesus, and serving and loving you, and serving and loving those that are around us, Lord God. I pray for your blessing upon this community. I thank you that you turn your face upon them, make your face shine upon them. I pray, Father, that if people are here this evening that have got heavy hearts, you set them free. I thank you that you heal bodies now. I know that an anthem that end off every meeting with communion. And this evening, God, we want to do that as we consecrate ourselves before you, as we prepare ourselves to cross the Jordan. Whatever that means for you individually or as a community, we do that by faith because our sins are washed away. Our guilt is removed. We are free in Christ. We are men and women with passion, men and women with, with future, men and women with direction. And this evening, Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd rest upon us. Sweetly, Lord. Such a sweet presence of the Lord. Bless these people, I pray.